Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness podcast where two atheists who run secular congregations discuss what spirituality means in our secular age. So uh, I'm one of the hosts, Sanderson Jones, and James is going to be joining when we interview our guest. As ever, we get uh, guests who've got something to talk about in this uh, area of uh, sort of spirituality, with inclusive spirituality, where spirituality meets science. Uh, so we've always got that lens to it, but then also people who are experts in their field and have got great advice on how to live your life as well as possible because we're not alive for long. So let's make the most of it. And uh, today our guest is a perfect example of someone who is living life and loving life. And I love him. He's called Shamash Aladina. I've known him for a while now. These relationships sneak up. And if I could bottle his vibe, I would, and I'd drink it every day. I mean, I think he's one of those people you'd be like, your every course you should do should just be sitting with you and just uh, absorbing uh, your smile and your general wonderful energy. But on top of that, he is a mindfulness expert. He wrote Mindfulness for Dummies, which is uh, one of their best-selling ever books. And the thing we're going to be talking about today is... Uh, acceptance and commitment therapy the new area which is really getting into it's called act i've trained in it and there are some really useful ideas in here like i think act is one of it's just got such a simple uh point of view which is that we all have difficult thoughts and feelings and instead of trying to fight them uh you just concentrate what's important to you and sort of don't let those feelings overpower you and i'm gonna get out the way and get you sort of uh, all the shamash goodness that you can because this was one of my favorite conversations uh, as ever there's a little bit at the end uh, where uh, normally it's just me talking i can have james there and we also speak about the lifefulness community but but i'm still getting in the way of shamash so uh, thanks for listening here's shamash enjoy it So there we go. We are uh, kicking off. This is the Lifefulness Podcast. We've got an awesome guest today. But before we get on to him, I'm going to check in with my co-host, James. How's it going, James? It's going great. Thank you. We've had some lovely snow over the last week. Just taking my puppy out in the snow has given me great joy. She seems to really, I can't tell if she enjoys it or hates it, but she certainly has a strong reaction to it. Uh, the what a lovely sort of bucolic image there. I hope you're wearing suitably sort of uh, cozy knitwear because that really brings the scene to life. And then yeah. we've also got Shamash Aladina, who is an old friend and an amazing teacher of mindfulness. And what we're going to really be speaking about is also acceptance and commitment therapy act, uh, which is uh, I very much like it. Uh, and I think there's loads of good really practical stuff in there for everyone. How's it going, Shamash? It's going really well. Really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I am apps. Ah, I, every time <laughs> I do events with Shamash, I just want to like go and have a big bowl of him and then get Shamash sprinkles and pour it on top and then have seconds the day after. So I'm just like, I'm already excited. And oh, uh, awesome. uh, so we're going to, 
uh, ask you our first question, which is what was the uh, religious uh, or spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? Oh, that's interesting, because um, my dad's side of the family were brought up as Muslims, a type of Muslim religion called Ismaili. And my mum's side were quite religious from a Hindu side. And they were both uh, a bit rebellious <laughs> and they decided to get together back in the time when it wasn't really accepted so well. So I got brought up in uh, an environment which was, wasn't strongly religious on either side, but was very philosophical. They were very interested in, in philosophy, used to watch a lot of philosophy. Back in those days, we were using audio tapes. So listening to all sorts of personal development stuff. And I wasn't that interested in it, to be honest. It was just there in the background. I was he hearing them, uh, listening to it as, they, as I was growing up. Uh, and there was, um, because there wasn't a strong religious belief on one side or the other, there wasn't any kind of major community that I was part of. So in some sense, there was a spiritual vacuum, but in the other sense, there was this fascination with philosophy. But all the people around me, or my friends uh, at school and stuff, they, you know, they, they were not interested in, in philosophy or anything like that at all, or philosophical thinking anyway. So yeah, I was brought up in that kind of mixture. And then also they, they were born in East Africa, their parents were from India. They came to the UK in the 60s and 70s, and I was the, the first child of the, of the new generation being brought up in, in the West. So yeah quite an inter interesting uh, mix there yeah that's great i can just picture you on car journeys with maybe with some alan watts playing and you're like <laughs> singing along in the background going, yeah. life trying to do my homework yeah. life is a song is it a game or whatever it might be and uh yeah. then uh and we're going to get into your like how you uh, came to be this uh teacher who literally wrote the book on mindfulness uh, or a book come on say it but, but the mindfulness for dummies series it's, it's not only book. one i've read for the dummies yeah for the dummies for the dummies, for the dummies yeah. i've written the book for most and, of us that's and, the most uh, important one and then uh you but then like so with the lifefulness podcast like the idea of lifefulness is looking we often say lifefulness is to congregation as mindfulness is to meditation so looking at spiritual communities and religious congregations and you know really taking the best things from them and saying actually there's loads in here that people can take advantage of. So uh, what would be the best thing that you think that the secular world could take from religion? Like what are some, the biggest lessons from it? Well, I think, well, with the, what I believe is a gradual breakdown of religion, I think one of the things we're massively missing, it's pretty obvious, is the sense of community. And uh, the community forms around a certain way of thinking or a certain belief. And so it's very clear with religion, it's coming from a top down belief that we, we all believe in this person or we believe in this kind of ideology. And so we all can't come together on this concept. Uh, and that is obviously hugely missing now. And so it's much harder for people to come together for, for a purpose and it's much easier for people to be more dispersed. Having said that, it's really fascinating what's happening right now with all the challenges of COVID and people being forced to be online my sense or gut feeling is that online communities are accelerating in their growth and, and coming together more and more and so uh so you know i've certainly no noticed it with mindfulness there's there's an even tighter sense of community with the people there because if they have to congregate online and they're all coming together in little groups and whatever they're fascinated with but yeah i would say that's the number one 
Uh, number two, I think there is a power in the sense of belief itself. There's a sense of uh, um, comfort that, you know, this is what we believe in. This is what, what truth is. And so it, there isn't this kind of existential crisis that can easily happen when we when there's this, I just don't know, is this true? Is this true? You know, and then watching television at the moment, that's being souped up to the max where you people are, you know, millions and millions of people are getting confused with what what I think is an absolute obvious, this is true and this is not true. Everything can be questioned, especially with uh, conspiracies and things. So I think when you create, when again, when you take away that that sense of clarity about what we believe as a group, anything can easily be believed. So I think the community, the sense of belief, um, and then the values that come under that, and this is nice because this will link with ACT very nicely too, is that there's a set of values that often uh, a religious a religion is, is interested in, hopefully positive values. And that is so important for our, our health and well-being. Um, when we start talking more about ACT, we'll talk about the aim is about a meaningful life and a life and a meaningful life is, is defined as a life aligned with our values. So being clear about what values are important to us and then taking all of our actions from that. And that's so motivating. And one of the beautiful things about that is it gives us loads of resilience. So when we meet something difficult or something challenging, if you're part of a religious belief, you know, you, you may believe in a God or something, and you know that certain values are so important that you're willing to go through the difficult feelings and the difficult thoughts, you know, yes, these are difficult, but you know, these are my values this is what I believe in. And there's so, so there's a resilience and there's an inner strength there. And that gets, that gets lost if you, if you're not, uh, if you don't believe in any values at all, and you just think life is about chasing after pleasures and avoiding pains, um, that, that can be a real big problem when the, ple the pleasures disappear, when you're trying to live a, a life which is just fun all the time and you, you're not feeling that or you're not managing to connect with that as much as you'd like. And, and then there can be so much frustration when things are going wrong. And then, you know, you start struggling to find a reason to live because of, you know, if I don't have uh, certain values underneath uh, that I feel are so important, that, that's, a, that's a big problem. So that's the third, that's the, that's three that come to mind. Well done. You did a nail, you nailed it. You suddenly turned it into a little three. I like you started off with one <laughs> and then you're like, oh, should I do two? And then you got to two and you're like, oh no, you never just give two. No, <laughs> two, two yeah. three. We'll just do the three. And, and, yeah, yeah. But it's a very good point. And we're going to go on to uh, lifefulness next because I've often looked back at my life and so as as people who listen to this podcast will know but if it's the first time so i was diagnosed with adhd when i was 38 like three years ago and so i found that like hugely difficult but then the one thing or a thing that i've got from a really young age was this like love of life and this like existential view of uh the world uh and how precious life is and all of this malarkey and so when and I look back on it and I think, well, you know, there's sometimes, as you guys will both know, and as anyone who's a teacher of anything or any sort of leader or just some, you get that sense of imposter syndrome when you're like, oh no, how can I haven't like gone and fixed this or fixed that? If I've got <laughs> lifefulness to help people live their lives, why aren't I like some celestial being who's just uh, goes <laughs> through the entire world, like with no problems at all, smiling beatifically at any issue. Uh, 
But then I'd say that, because, you know, that's a ludicrous idea. But the one, like, having this sense of the preciousness of life has meant that, like, when things have got really difficult, it is something to come back to. And we're now going to use sort of uh, lifefulness to go and frame this conversation because there's six pillars of lifefulness. And I think that your work goes and chimes with the idea of personal growth and also practices of contemplation and celebration. And so that's the sort of area that we're going to look at. And uh, before we do that, it would be great to know a bit more about how you went on this journey from being a sort of uh, like semi-religious, non-religious, or religious, curious, <laughs> philo- confused kid, fi, fi curious. Uh, and, uh, and I know you became a scientist, but then you've sort of made this transition mm. to being a teacher. So how did that happen? Yeah, so I, I was interested in this um, personal development, but just just very kind of vaguely and very lightly. It wasn't a strong uh, part of me. And so I was, I guess, very materialistic. And when I was uh, at approaching the end of my school years and going to university, I just went to the careers advisor and I said, look, uh, you know, I've got these grades in science. I'm thinking of uh, going into a career. What shall I do? And, you know, he gave me the careers manual when I looked at the book and I, I looked at the, you know, I had physics, chemistry and maths. I thought, OK, what should I which one gives me the highest salary for the number of grades that I've got? And then it came out as chemical engineering. So I thought, OK, chemical engineering, that's what I'll do. Because if I'll be eternally happy uh, making lots of money being a chemical engineer. So that was my logic at that time. And so I went off to university. And suddenly what was really easy for me to compete with all the other students at school, suddenly I was, uh, you know, I was at Imperial in London, there were people from all over the world that had come to study this and probably the same sort of mindset as I had and it was much more, much more competitive. And what I'd done is I'd built my ego, my sense of self-esteem on just simply grades uh, and, and, and achievement. And suddenly that was getting knocked and I was having to work harder and harder and Eventually, halfway through my degree, I had the chance to, to do a job. So I, I did a job trying this chemical engineering stuff. And by the second day, I absolutely hated it. I really didn't want to do it. I remember I, we had these swipe cards. We had to swipe in and out and it timed how long you'd been working. And by the end of the six weeks, I actually got a negative paycheck somehow. Because <laughs> I spent so much time. <laughs> <laughs> Your salary this month is minus two hundred twenty-seven pounds. Oh, no. <laughs> I did anti-work, so I managed. I thought this is definitely not right for me. I'm losing money as I'm working, so I thought, okay, what shall I do? And I saw a poster for a philosophy class in London. It was one of these practical philosophy classes. I thought that has got to be the opposite of chemical engineering, practical <laughs> philosophy. Let's try that. And it was only twenty pounds for a whole course. I'm like, okay, I'm in. And I went along to this class and that was my first experience of mindfulness, actually. I felt very much at home with what was being discussed. You know, I, I had the sense of uh, there was this awe and wonder about the world and, you know, why are we here? What are we doing here? Uh, is there anything beyond just the, the material science, which, ex, which, which seemed to explain a lot? And suddenly people were interested in this and they were sharing quotes from everyone from Einstein to Shakespeare to, to Eastern philosophers. But the really mind-blowing moment was when we did this five-minute exercise where we just went through all of our different senses, starting with the sense of sight. And then we, we finally went to hearing. And then they got us to be observant of our thoughts. 
And I thought, whoa, I've never done that before where I was sitting back and watching the thoughts popping up as if I'm watching a movie. And then they told me that, okay, if you're watching the thoughts, that means you're not your thoughts. You're the observer of it. And that was like, wow, that means that, you know, all these negative thoughts or these worries that I have or these difficult emotions, they're just arising up and going back again. They're not who I am. And that gave me such a, an amazing feeling of freedom. And then the other massive thing I learned was that actually, you know, I was constantly planning for the future. I was going to get this job, get married, get these, live in this amazing house and all that. It was all future orientated. And suddenly I discovered that actually there's something amazing about just looking at the trees, just looking at the sky, looking at the birds, just going for a walk. There's something special about being in the present moment. And I, and I never knew that at all. So I got, I got obsessed with just being in the present moment. In fact, I got a bit too obsessed, almost crashed my car. Because <laughs> I just I tried to be so present. I wasn't, I wasn't even able to judge like when people were going to walk in front of me. And, and I remember driving to completely wrong direction, but trying to be very present. So I probably got a bit too carried away. I'm there. not familiar uh, with the law, Shamash, but if you run someone over, but you were really in the present moment, does it still count? Is there mitigating circumstances? Well, <laughs> well, one of the laws is like, are you driving with due care and attention? You are. You're very much in yes, the present. Much, so, too <laughs> much attention. Dri dri driving with too much due care and attention. Yes, yeah, you were. Yeah. They, they need to. They need to update that one. It sounds like one of those things. Like, well, if anything, I care too much. Like you're trying to sort of like uh, <laughs> one of those reasons yeah. in a job interview of your flaws, which are actually your credit there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just work too hard and I just care too much. That's my problem. <laughs> So, yeah, so, but, and, and actually almost failed my, my degree in my third year as well, because if I stopped going to lectures, I was just reading <laughs> books by like Krishnamurti and all these philosophers and spiritual teachers. And I thought, what's the point of, of engineering? What's the point of all this? You just need to live in the moment. And that's where your happiness comes and your peace comes. It's all about that. But anyway, I managed to just about get through and uh, I went on to, uh, I decided that, you know, every child should learn this. I was very frustrated. I was age 20 by the time I'd learned this. But why did I not learn this when I was younger? So I decided to teach in a school uh, where all the children did this mindfulness and, and meditation stuff and, and as well as philosophy. But I was mainly a science teacher there. It's a, an amazing the, story. Amazing story. I, I love how oh, you saw this you. poster and it kind of changed your whole life. I mean, that's a serious yeah. win for their marketing department. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, I think... Actually, I think MNC Saatchi, someone from MNC Saatchi used to work for them. Oh, so really? Yeah, exactly. So it's very well designed. Aren't they also like there's some cult-like occasional tendencies? There's some people who love it very, very much yeah. and it's had a few... Yeah sort of it's got a colorful past which involves madame blavatsky and gurdjieff and other that's sort of right, like yeah. i was going to ask about the fact that it's a cult but you got there before you <laughs> <laughs> usually it's me who's like yeah that's that dodgy cult in london with the question mark posters i've seen <laughs> yeah yeah no, no that's why i left after a few years but uh it also had uh, some really probably with all these cults there's there's some benefits that people experience early on mm. Um, I got I had uh, lots of awesome insights from there that I took away. Yeah. So I I have a question, which is that you you describe feeling very much at home in this space and getting there and 
doing the first kind of mindfulness activity and paying attention to your thoughts and it being a big revelation. But me, and I'm sure lots of our listeners, will have tried things like that and find it very... It makes me very anxious. I'm always like, what am I doing? I should be doing something right now. I want to be being productive. This is a waste of time. Like it makes me much more anxious and less calm than not doing it. So uh, do you have any advice for people like me? <laughs> uh, that's actually a really good point, actually. And you're absolutely right. Um, it's almost unhelpful for me to share that story. I mean, it's just, just my experience. I'm sharing it. But actually... For many people, it's a challenging experience to do mindfulness. And uh, you hit the nail on the head with the word calming or relaxing because of most people, unfortunately, associate the word mindfulness with trying to be calm or trying to be relaxed. But actually, it's all about awareness. And so you're stopping, you're slowing down, you're noticing that there's anxiety there. And what we're saying is there's nothing, nothing wrong with feeling that. If you have the feeling of anxiety, maybe it was there before, maybe there's some thoughts that's causing it. Um, maybe it's okay for you to feel the way you are. And it's just a matter of sitting there and maybe something else will arise in the future. Uh, so it's about slowing down, noticing about coming into the present and realizing that that anxiety is not going to be there forever or even for very long. But uh, in terms of what tips I would give for someone who's um, finding it challenging having, uh, doing the mindful exercises would be to start really, really small. Um, another thing that I'm a huge fan of is uh, behavior change and, and tiny, tiny actions and tiny habits. A guy called BJ Fogg has done a lot of really great research on this. And I encourage people now just to start with a few seconds or just one deep breath and to just pepper that into the day. And if it feels good, if it feels nice, then you, then you allow it to grow from there. So you could use the analogy of a seed and you're planting the seed of mindfulness or awareness. And so maybe when you start your day in the morning, you know, you, you plant your feet on the floor and you may close your eyes and take a deep breath in and out and you just feel the in breath and the out breath. And if you find that enjoyable, you maybe do it one or two more times. And then maybe just like a seed, when you plant it in and you water it every day, it may start to grow. It may not. Everyone's different. Um, but that would be one of my tips that comes to mind. That I would, I would encourage people to do. Give it a little try. Yeah. This is going to be a micro moment to remind you that there is the Lifefulness podcast, but there's also the Lifefulness community. And all you need to do is go and look in the links below to see how you can join in. Shamash said the best thing we could learn from religion was that idea of fellowship and community. And that's what we're doing. So back to the pod, back to Shamash, and we love you. I also think there is something with mindfulness where it, you know, it isn't uh, in the sort of in the countries where it hails from, like it's not necessarily a mass movement. It's not like everyone is doing mindfulness every day in Thailand. It is something for monks to do. Like, I mean, like actually people have got originally. Yeah, but, you're right. But I think yeah. that, but even today, it's not like it's, uh, it requires a certain frame of mind and there are, there've been, uh, other types of practices which are you know which go and help other people like ones which are more based around movement or you know the certain sort of tantric practices not the sexy ones but which are about like finding another like an activity and using that as a way to uh, come into the present moment and so I think that 
like often because mindfulness has become such the like this touchstone for like how you do these things and John Kabat-Zinn did such a great job he's the sort of founder of modern mindfulness of creating an evidence base for it and sort of going uh you know showing that the mindfulness-based stress reduction which is his first course helps that like people think it's the only one you can do but in fact and we're going to get onto this in act it shows that there's loads of different things that you can do and uh before we get onto that i was just wondering like one more the thing like what are some like from your sort of time teaching mindfulness because when did you release mindfulness for dummies uh 2010. what has been that change that you've seen in that time <laughs> around mindfulness well all these dummies oh, are now amazing. doing mindfulness <laughs> <laughs> We're all geniuses now, actually. <laughs> uh, that's such a great question. Well, when I, uh, in 2008 or around that time or seven, when I was uh, searching around for mindfulness teachers, there was one or two in London and I did their class. And I remember looking at all the research papers on it and saying, wow, there's so much research on it. And nobody seems to be teaching this at all, which is really weird. Uh, and I studied it in, in Wales and in, in the US with John Kabat-Zinn for a while as well. And when I actually talked to these editors about the book, they'd never heard of mindfulness, the, these, these two editors in London. They said, yeah, there's like three books on mindfulness at the moment. We're not sure if this is going to work or not, but maybe we'll, we'll give it a try. So I had to explain to them what mindfulness was. They pitched it to their sales team and then they, you know, which was a separate story in itself, but they got me to write the book. But when that book came out, it was already starting to get on the NHS, the National Health Service, for, for as a treatment for depression. They'd done a really nice study. Uh, these scientists in the UK and Canada, they actually went to John Kabat-Zinn in the US. They saw the way he was teaching it. And they thought, I wonder if this could work on the National Health Service as a treatment for depression. Because, you know, one in four people at some point will get depression. We need something better than just giving them drugs or just one-to-one. -one. I wonder if this group treatment would work. And they found they did they did multiple really high quality studies and they found it was really, really powerful. So it was starting to get on the National Health Service and this interest, it kind of caught a wave when that book came out. So I just got really lucky in that as the book came out, this there was this huge wave of interest and it ended up being one of their most popular books. So it was number two or number three for the dummies books. Do you get a cut of each one? I get a small cut. Yeah. How much is your cut? <laughs> Go on, mate. Uh, they they uh well it's ten percent roughly 10%. which is what most which is what most yeah. do you know how many is it sold I'm just gonna work out how much money you <laughs> oh my god do you know. know do you know I don't oh, do you know why not it's fun come on we want to encourage people to see the benefits of these practices <laughs> I think I think so it sold over a hundred thousand so I'm not a millionaire oh hello <laughs> not bad though that's not pretty bad. good yeah. and uh, you did other books on on mindful like not just but other dummies books about mindfulness I saw which is amazing yeah. I mean yeah yeah how come you're calling in from this house then why don't you have the like <laughs> mindfulness mega bucks I want some mega pasta sort of like columns <laughs> Shamash, you. Uh, he has got very nice plants in the background. He does there, have Solis. very nice. Yeah, no, got, they could be rare plants. The guy's got two white. <laughs> they could be rare plants. One of them's even a money plant, isn't it? What's happening? <laughs> He's got two whiteboards. Hello. Mr. <laughs> Flash, two whiteboards. They're, 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 they're flat screen TVs. Okay. No, no they're not. Uh, and then, uh, so like there's mindfulness now, it's gone out of the dummies thing and there's, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure people have more people have heard of that. But now you have like really moved into this, uh, the world of acceptance and commitment therapy act, mm. which uh, you know, I've done some training in, I really love it. And it'd be great for you to, uh, if you could just sort of go and explain like what, uh, you know, just start off at the beginning, like what sure. is Sure. What is ACT and uh, how does it differ from mindfulness or other things like that? Yeah, yeah. So ACT stands for acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training. So it's not necessarily a therapeutic approach. It can be used in the workplace. And it was developed or co-developed by a guy called Dr. Stephen Hayes in, in the US. And he is one of the top 50 cited psychologists, I think, of all time, not even living. So he's very, very well respected. He's, he's released a lot of research. And it's just a fascinating story of how he discovered it. So he was a, he was a kind of a psychologist. And when he was at work one day uh, at university, a couple of senior lecturers, they started fighting in front of him. And they were just really shouting at each other. And as they were shouting at each other, he was in the corner of this room. And he started to experience his first anxiety attack in the sense of, you know, his heart started racing faster and faster. And so he told them, you know, he just said, stop, or, or he tried to say stop. And, and both of these senior professors turned to him. And then his, his, his heart was racing so much, nothing else was coming out of his mouth. And so they just like looked at him really confused and they just carried on, on fighting as they, as, they, as they do. And he felt really small and really trapped in that moment. He felt really, really anxious. So being a psychologist, he thought, okay, I've got all these skills and you know, challenging my negative thoughts and relaxation techniques. So uh, the anxieties came, came back again every now and then. So he started using all the techniques of the day. This was in, I think the 1960s. And so he was using all these techniques, but rather than the anxiety going away, it kind of kept coming back. And so he started using avoidance strategies to avoid this anxiety. So whenever he had to give a lecture, he'd like, oh no, I won't give a lecture. I'm gonna empower my students, let them give the lecture. So he was getting them to do their talks. Or, or, uh, and, then, and then he wanted to sometimes play videotapes in his lectures to get people to watch it, but his hand was shaking so much he could hardly put it in. So the anxiety started to grow. But, but then he started to use relaxation techniques because he thought, that, okay, if I do deep breathing and relaxation, that's going to help me. So he remembers sitting on his desk and doing this deep breathing exercise. And, you know, he's like, oh, wow, I don't feel anxious right now. This is great. Just relax. And then suddenly he would notice his heart's beating a bit faster. And he'd be like, relax, Stephen. And then his heart would beat faster and he'd, like, he'd be like, relax. And then before he knew it, he had another uh, panic attack. And then they started to happen, not just at work, but at home. And then the moment of actually the act being born was uh, in this amazing moment where he was, he woke up in the middle of the night and he was convinced that he's, he's having a heart attack. You know, he's completely sweating. His kind of left arm is aching and he's got all the signs of, uh, of a cardiac arrest, the heart attack. He's like, oh yeah, I've got, you know, the last thing he wanted to think that this is a panic attack because it was in the middle of the night, he'd woken up from his sleep. Um, so he went to call 911 in the US to call the ambulance to save himself, but there was a part of him that wouldn't do it. And instead his head started to imagine what he would do. He would imagine walking to the phone. 
He imagined himself dining 911. He imagined the ambulance coming, taking him away. He imagined uh, him being in a hospital bed. He imagined the doctor coming up to him, him, him having all the stuff on. And he imagined the doctor saying to him, Dr. Hayes, I've got some news for you. You haven't had a heart attack. You've just had a panic attack. And when he realized that that was actually what was happening, he kind of collapsed within himself. And he just went, he just ended up on the, on the floor and next in his bedroom on the floor in this incredible state. But he suddenly made this amazing realization is that everything he was doing, every technique he was doing was to try and get rid of the anxiety. He was running and running and running and running from this anxiety. And at that moment, when he hit absolute rock bottom, he realized that, hang on a minute, I'm going to stop running away from this anxiety. It can, the anxiety can come as much as it wants and I'm just going to be here and I'm going to face up to it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to use any more techniques to run away from it. I'm just going to continue with my life. And, and he knew something transformed in that moment, but he didn't know what, but he's like, he suddenly became the observer of his own experience. He would describe it as a spiritual experience, but he was a hardcore scientist. And so he spent years and years after that to try and work out what happened. This is, you know, mindfulness wasn't really a thing at that. This was kind of even maybe before John Kabat-Zinn. And so he just, he put, he actually did a whole bunch of research and he developed this ACT program in a way, which I'll explain in a second, which is all about this. It's all about going from avoidance to acceptance. It's all about rather than trying to fix yourself, accepting yourself. It's all about doing things that are meaningful for you rather than spending your life trying to fix yourself. Uh, it's all about being present rather than being uh, lost in your thoughts. And, and he found that what worked for him in that moment is actually because of, is, that happened because of the way our brains work, the way language works, the way thought processes work. That's why he ended up in that state. And he worked out what worked for him and the techniques that he developed from there is something that ended up hundreds and thousands of other scientists through this movement discovered is what this, this approach ACT is. Now, uh, to explain a little bit about what ACT is, it's a beautiful thing because, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about happiness and well-being and all this stuff, but it doesn't focus on happiness and well-being. It says that the aim of ACT is to cultivate a rich and meaningful life. It's... It, it's, it's the very basis of this therapeutic or training approach is that how do you live a meaningful life, not how you live a happy life. And that's really important. In fact, there's a whole book on, on the trap that is created by just chasing happiness. Happiness is a feeling. So it's all about cultivating this rich and meaningful life. And it gives you a whole bunch of skills to help you to navigate your life, to have this meaningful life. Now, this skill of cultivating a meaningful life is all about cultivating what in ACT they call psychological flexibility. And what they found is that psychological flexibility is like a super skill of mental health. If we can have psychological flexibility, where we can have the willingness to have difficult uh, emotions, difficult thoughts, difficult sensations, but we can stay committed, acceptance and commitment therapy. We can stay committed to our values. We can stay committed to living a meaningful life despite these difficult thoughts and feelings coming up. And so that's really what the aim of ACT is and that's what it's all about.
James, do you have, I've got a question that I would like to sort of go back. To. Yeah, so I think there's sort of two things which are there, which sort of uh, are really important. And one is this thing of doing, uh, like doing it anyway. And this is something I'd really try to put into practice, but of just accepting that our, that we will have these thoughts. I often use this phrase, which comes from ACT when working with people of the usual suspects, which I love this idea that we've all got these thoughts and that they're as opposed to cognitive behavioral therapy, which like I, that's what Jules Evans was speaking about on our previous podcast, like which, which has got its place. There are some things where you just go, actually, I'm gonna have to keep on living with this. And I'd, uh, I'd love to, for you to just like, just really explore like what you know, sure, really sure, go sure. into that. Yeah. It's such a huge idea that I think it's so strong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think you beautifully explained it, it there. So ACT is actually considered the third wave of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, there's been a couple of waves. The you know the first wave was more about just 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 uh, just managing your behaviour, not thinking about people's thoughts at all. They didn't think of human beings as having thoughts, just trying to control their behaviour in a way. The second wave of of CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, was all about well, part of it was about challenging thoughts. So the idea is that we have these negative thoughts, uh, NAT sometimes they call them negative automatic thoughts. And they thought the best approach would be to challenge those negative thoughts. So, you know, I'm not good enough. Yes, I am good enough. Look, I've got that swimming certificate and I've got this and I've got that and I can do this. So you, you try and use evidence. <laughs> I mean, this isn't pictured. You've got a width. But he's <laughs> yeah. got two, it turns out he's got two whiteboards and a swimming certificate. I mean, Shamash, no wonder yes. life is easy for you. <laughs> exactly. I take it for granted. Oh my God! Look, I think this is now starting. I'm swimming in it now. <laughs> starting to alienate a lot of people who are listening to this podcast. You can no longer connect to this high achiever. Hang on a minute. I saw a video the other day that looked like you had a swimming certificate as well. Uh, he just yeah. got, had a swimming pool, not a, he didn't. He wasn't technically allowed to be in there, but you know, needs uh, must. For uh, people who have not uh, seen my online output, I uh, made an advertisement <laughs> for my house, which truth be told, and now I've been hosted by my own swimming pool shaped petard, uh, trying to sell my flat by advertising my pool. So Shamash, well done for slamming me down there. Thanks. Did it work, by the way? I'm gutted. It didn't work. Oh, no, 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 sorry. I thought you meant, did you insulting me work? <laughs> uh, no, the insult worked. <laughs> the insult worked, but uh, the house is still for sale if anyone's interested. Okay, yeah. even though it must, must have got a lot of views. That was a brilliant video. Thanks very much, mate. So anyway, your swimming certificate. We're not just yeah. So, so it's not about it's not about challenging challenging our thoughts or fixing our thoughts. Uh, what act mind and mindfulness other approaches? These third waves of of mindfulness. Uh, so the third wave of CBT are mindful approaches. So they kind of co combine mindfulness and acceptance with the with the thoughts. So rather than trying to to fix our thoughts. Uh, these approaches say that actually thoughts are just thoughts. They're just sounds. They're just pictures that come into our head. We can't really fix them. We just need to make space and allow them to be there. We need to relate to them as we would relate to the clouds in the sky. You just watch them come and go. You don't try and fix the weather. We, we can't fix the weather in the same way we can't fix our thoughts. 
Um, and one, one of the exercises in ACT is, you know, quite simply, if you think you can control your thoughts, there's a simple exercise you can do for 30 seconds or a minute. You know, just try not thinking about Sanderson swimming in a swimming pool. And the harder you try not to do it, the more that thought will keep popping into your head. The more aroused you will get. And I know. Something I, I know what I'm doing this evening. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. This does. We do label this as explicit, and you're just those sorts of images are going to uh, arise. Uh, I have a question. So, uh, if I understand what you said correctly, part of of act of accept, acceptance and commitment therapy is about mm -hmm. having a particular relationship to your own thoughts, and maybe mm -hmm. not always assuming, firstly, that your thoughts are you which is something that I'm kind yes. of susceptible to as a very cerebral academic person. I kind of associate myself with my thoughts, but also mm -hmm. that this is something I've been trying to learn as I struggle with my own anxiety is not assuming that because I have a thought that something is the case, that it actually is the case. I know that's a really weird thing to say when you say it out loud. It's like, of course, not every thought you have is true, but Sometimes with particular anxiety-inducing thoughts, I at least tend to feel like, well, I wouldn't be thinking this if there wasn't something to it. But I'm kind of trying to be more aware of, like, it could just be a thought. Is that Does that make sense yeah. to you? Yeah, and I would put that kind of slightly more into the second wave of CBT because of there's a sense, maybe I'm wrong from what you said, but there's a sense of I've got this anxiety and I need to try and find some ways in which I could reduce it. And maybe it's something to do with my thinking and maybe I need to change my thinking and that may reduce the anxiety. Uh, and what we're saying is that that is one approach and that may work for some people. So give that a go. If you find that doesn't work, rather than giving your attention on trying to fix that anxiety or reduce it, we make space for it that actually anxiety is going to be there sometimes it's going to be high and sometimes it's going to be low we make space and allow and accept it to be there and instead of focusing on that we focus our attention on what makes my life meaningful what am i passionate about what is it that makes me come alive and, and i focus my attention on that and i make space for these difficult feelings to come up <clears throat> i think a good example is the the metaphor of uh, being on a bus i think we, we talked about that earlier um Sanderson. so this is a classic metaphor and it says that imagine uh your life is as if you're you're like a bus driver and you're driving your bus and at the front of the bus is the direction you want to go in your values what's meaningful for you uh, so let's say it's teaching so you want to be a teacher or something and you've got that on the front of your bus um but you stop at the bus stop and you get all these different passengers that come on and some of them say that, you know, you're not good enough. Some of them say that, you know, you're too fat or you're too skinny. Some of them judge you in different ways. Some of them are anger thoughts. Some of them uh, say that you're brilliant and you're the best thing since sliced bread. So there's all these different characters on your bus. <clears throat> so you start driving along, but these characters, they're really annoying. These thoughts, these anxiety inducing thoughts, these difficult feelings, they're, they're characters on the bus. And so you stop the bus and you try and push some of them out. And you push them and they push you back and, and you start getting into a bit of a fight and you feel that you need to try this program or that program or this technique or that technique to try and get rid of them. And, you know, the latest technique comes along and you try it and it works for a bit, but then they come back on. And so you're spending all your time messing about with these passengers. You're not going anywhere with your bus. And you notice another bus and they've got all these passengers on it, 
but they're just focused on where they want to go. They're focusing on, on what their dream is, whatever's on the front of their bus. And so what ACT is saying is that rather than trying to fix all these, all these crazy characters in the back of your bus, what about if you focus your attention forwards and you go in line with your, with your dreams? Now, when you do this, you will find that some of those characters will get even more stronger. The anxiety, the, the difficult thoughts that I'm not good enough will actually become more stronger. And that's not a sign that there's something bad going on. Uh, one beautiful quote from ACT is, we hurt where we care. We're anxious when we're giving a talk in front of a lot of people because we care that, about the people that are listening. We want them to hear something which is, which is helpful, useful for them. So when this anxiety, when these difficult feelings are coming up, it's a sign that we're doing something that's meaningful for us. And what we end up doing instead by mistake is avoiding the feeling of anxiety. So let's say when you, get, when you do teach a class or when you do do some teaching, it makes you feel anxious. So then you think, oh, I don't want to feel anxiety. So I will stop doing that teaching. And this thing makes me anxious. So I'll stop doing that. And so rather than your life becoming more rich and meaningful, your life becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And these characters start to control your, the way where your bus goes rather than you. So such an empowering philosophy because it's telling you that, you know, you're in charge of the bus. You go where you want to go. The characters can say as much as they want. They will not harm you. The thoughts cannot harm you. They're just thoughts. The feelings, yes, they're difficult. They're challenging. And that's why we teach the mindful skills to be able to handle them and make space for them, which may be just a deep breath or two or maybe some other simple techniques. But we make space for them to be there and we keep focusing on where we want to go. Mm. The, uh, yeah, I think that's such a useful thing. And there's like these really great analogies in there. Like, you know, if you're caught in quicksand, you end up that the more you struggle, the deeper you get, which is really good. That's one which uh, I've always liked. And then uh, I've slightly adapted one because they've got this thing, like sometimes your values, you can hold on to them too much. And so it's a bit like a, uh, a sort of like if you, you know, like, let's say you want to have freedom. And then what you do is you say, well, I want to be free. So I don't want to have a job. I don't want to have and then you suddenly can't do anything because your valuing of freedom has made you unfree. And uh, they use the analogy if you've got a rose and if you hold on to the rose too tightly, you know, you value it so much you get the thorn in you. I also find the example of a puppy is sort of slightly a more graphic image if you want to sort of a bit more give it a bit more of a mice and men feel uh and uh so uh yeah and so like that idea i think is so powerful because we can end up fighting it and particularly there is this sort of idea of like you've got to be positive always be positive like you know don't uh you know, control your mind, be like a be like a watchman over your thoughts or whatever it might be. And there is an element where that is true because you can become aware of it. But I, I think this is a really useful one, particularly because I, I don't know, for me, I certainly really identify it when you're like, I'm sort of doing lots of the other things. And yet I still will go and succumb to this. And then what I love about ACT as well is it's got these like super practical things like of how to distance yourself from your thoughts, not to change them. But it's got one called Titchener's Repetition, which I think is such a funny thing where you just, yeah, yeah, it sounds like one of the names for on uh, the day to day that they'd have for one of their invented horse races, uh, horses, uh, the, uh, but where you take your thought and you just repeat it until it sort of loses its meaning. 
and uh, like saying your thought or idea in a sort of Daffy Duck accent as well, or whatever it might be. What other things are there which people can find helpful if they might be having a thought which they want to sort of not sort of push away, but just not have it feel as uh, all encompassing? Yeah, exactly. No, they're great examples. They're, they're called unhooking skills. So one of the things in act, they're actually mindfulness techniques, but very rarely used in, in, in most mindfulness courses. And uh, you've described a, a couple of them. So one of them would be repetition, another one changing the tone. Uh, one funny one, which I've found helpful, actually. So when I kind of reflected and examined, what is it that really kind of at the, is at the root of many of my challenges? It's actually the thought I'm not good enough. And so I thought, OK, what, what techniques does ACT say to use with I'm not good enough? And one of the techniques is actually to sing it to happy birthday <laughs> or, or to some other tune. So, so I actually did that. I, I, I did it and I did, you know, did it out loud, like, I am not good enough. I'm not not good good. Enough. You actually do it while you're, washing, <laughs> while you're washing hands as well. These days it works really well. <laughs> I'm not good yeah. enough. And um, so I did that and I was a bit scared to do it actually. I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to really not be good enough. Mm. But uh, it made me laugh the first time. And after I did it for a couple of days, just every now and then, the thought I am not good enough, it just has no emotional tone to it at all. If anything, it makes me smile and makes me think about birthdays, <laughs> but it doesn't really have that meaning that it had before, behind it. And it's, I was really shocked that how powerful it was, something that, that could be controlling your life for years mm. and could be dissipated in its power within a day or two. So yeah, there's another there's another fun one that you could try. But that's so interesting, isn't it? Because it just makes me wonder why is the human mind so weird, and and why does it act <laughs> in ways that seem so maladaptive, right? Why would we have thoughts like mm. I'm not like I understand we're social animals, we care about what other people think of us, we're very status oriented, all that stuff. So we might think we're not good enough, but what why would we get into a position where we would we were telling ourselves, you know, we have to sing it's just a weird thing to have to do and i just seems I know, strange yeah, yeah. i think he talks about that because if uh underneath that act is a is a very clear and comprehensive theory of language and cognition called relational frame theory and it explains the answer to your questions it's quite complex oh, i've got to read, um, read but, about but, that is that in your yeah, check. mindfulness for dummies but is there act <laughs> no. for dummies that uh yes there is it's actually that's a good book Accepting are you getting it are you, uh, are you getting those bucks are you getting the act bucks no no, no <laughs> i didn't write it i didn't write Come that book <laughs> um uh so yes what was i talking yes. about <laughs> who, who gives a shit no we're talking about <laughs> oh, the uh, why are oh yes the brain the brain yeah, yeah. the brain the brain and how it forgets things no uh i mean one of his arguments is that compared to the length of evolution, which is, you know, hundreds of millions of years for, for animals and mammals, the human brain is between 200,000 and a million years old. And it's very, very early in its stages in, in which it's evolved to have this language. And what, we, what we're doing, what's going wrong in, from an evolutionary perspective is that when we visualize something in our heads, we're treating it as if it's really there. So you could, you know, you could visualize, I mean, right now we could visualize a really delicious um, ice cream or something, and you could end up salivating, but there's no ice cream there at How all. How did you it's know that was happening? <laughs> you genius. Oh, so, sorry. yeah. And, and, and so that happens for negative thoughts too. So, you know, you worry about something or other, <laughs> I won't give any ideas, but as soon as you start thinking about that, 
the worries start. And then what's what Dr. Stephen Hayes experienced? He was just doing literally nothing, just lying in his bed and his heart is racing away like crazy. It's because of the more he was trying to get rid of the thought, the more he was giving energy to it. It, it works in the opposite way to how we would expect, like you're saying. The more you try to get rid of negative emotions and negative thoughts, you're giving them energy. The opposite is an example of a relationship. So that's why positive thinking, in a sense, doesn't work. Because if you keep going around saying, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough. <laughs> why would somebody be going around saying that all the time? It's because they're not good enough. And so that I'm good enough actually reminds them I'm not good enough. And so those two actually connect each other. And so the human mind is able to make all sorts of crazy connections from one thing to the other. And so we need to be mindful of that and use... Um, thing is we can in the same way use the same tool the mind how it goes crazy with some ways and use it for our benefit through through what they've discovered through act for example and i think weird techniques <laughs> that the yeah and that a lot of the we had a great guy john viveki on who really speaks about this in uh, his uh, research and then his great podcast awakening from the meaning crisis that there are lots of wisdom traditions which help us with the perennial problems that we have, you know, our brains which can sort of are well adapted to some things, but then, you know, treat certain things as real, have got a, you know, all of these different biases, like a hypersensitive agency detection where we go and imagine sort of uh, causes for things or think that there's uh, thoughts behind something, you know, the negativity bias, because it, we should be on the lookout for danger. And now there's so much information out there, which means there's so much potential danger, which, you know, we then can't think about. And then a lot of the things which reaching back to what you said about community, we then feel that we don't actually have a people that we're not really sort of embedded in a way that someone's got our back no matter what and so all of these things go and compound and at the same time we're just pumping in dopamine via social media in a way which is uh sort of uh distinctly uh enervating uh that uh yeah it is uh makes it uh <laughs> makes for a hell of a ride in the 21st century i was uh, gonna we, say you make everything sound really shit Sanderson. ah but then again those same tools when harnessed for good have got the power to transform lives and to connect us and to make the world as you know they've also been the source of all the wonder in the world so they're not entirely shit but like there's uh certainly our mind can be our friend and uh and then I, we're getting to the end of this. Shamash, I love you. You're great. What would be some mm -hmm. other key things which just maybe like a couple of other headliners which people find really helpful from ACT, would you say? Um, well, we touched upon values. And one thing that I, I found uh, really helpful is to, to do some little exercise to reflect, actually, what are, what are my values? And or what is really important to me? And one exercise that I find helpful is magic wanding. So imagine that you have a magic wand or someone has a magic wand and it, and it whizzes away all your negative thoughts and feelings. You're able to have the freedom to be able to do whatever you want. You've got all the confidence that you need. You've got the money you need to do it. What would you do with that time? What would you do with that energy? And then whatever you do, whatever activity you decide, it may not be that you go for that goal, but that will give you a sense of the kind of 
qualities and values like if you'd be i don't know you, if you want to be the president or something okay you're, you're very interested in communities you're, you're very interested in making a difference in the world from from a political perspective and from a government perspective maybe you need to think about the way you connect with your community and connect with others if it would be something to do with you know, education or maybe you want to publish your own book and you want to teach about something or other okay so what tiny steps can you take every day you're very interested you're obviously very interested in learning learning is one of your values and at the moment you may have some job as an accountant or something but how can you continue to activate that learning part of you either in your job or outside of your job how can you make space for that so you try and use these kind of exercises to think what are the underlying values that are important for me like for me were you know to do with curiosity to do with kind of humor and joyfulness to do with mindfulness to do with kindness to do with education and so I, my, my ideal would be to apply those values as much as I can in each day. And, and that's what gives me meaning and everyone's different and there's no right or wrong with these values. You need to find what it is for you. And so this magic wand is the Hitachi magic wand, powerful vibrator. Or <laughs> is it a... I was just mentally speaking, I was like, oh yeah, that's great. I love that. <laughs> I've used that technique many times. Or is it more of a sort of... Depends on your values. It depends, depends on your values. On your values. <laughs> Cause there you are trying to lift people's souls and two smut burgers over here. Uh, and then what's one... Okay, we'll see if we can try to keep this last one pure. What's one other thing which is uh, a useful thing from um, uh, uh, ACT or really sort of all, all of the work that you do? Well, maybe in summary, I came up with a nice... Uh, acronym for for act uh, it's the word action and they 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 would remind people of the six different uh psychological flexibility kind of uh things that the, the kind of the different aspects that you can adjust so the acronym action a stands for acceptance so learning to accept to make space for all our thoughts and emotions that come along c stands for cognitive diffusion that's the unhooking skills that we talked about like repeating a word many times or singing it to a tune, for example. T, we didn't get a chance to talk about this much. T stands for transcendent self, the ability to step back from your thoughts, see things from an observer perspective. And I had a bit of that experience when I went to my philosophical cult that I described earlier. <laughs> I stands for in the moment, and that's about coming into the here and now, and that gives us a freedom from these crazy thoughts about the past and the future. O is a beautiful one. O is open up, opening our hearts to our values. So that takes a lot of courage. It's not easy to do, but it's about learning to open up to find out what really matters to us. And finally, N is putting it into action. So N is navigating with meaningful action. So navigating towards and taking action every day to do something that's meaningful for you. Action. Action. Uh, where can people get more Shamash? Because I heartily recommend everyone gets as much Shamash in their life as possible. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, if you visit my website, shamashaladina.com, and uh, you get extra bonus points if you can spell it. There we go. And, uh, well, look, thank you so much. I, at the end of these podcasts, I like to do a little blessing for my guests. And I, oh, Sh Shamash, it's you. so easy with you because I've known you for a long time. And every single time that I see you, you make my heart open up a little more. And I see you from the other side of the room, and I just want to get more Shamash in me. Uh, 
in a figurative way. Uh, and I'm going to take the action uh, acronym as well and say that you are adorable. And that's, uh, you just really are. You're so lovable you. and kind. C, you are very creative i've seen you do oh, i've seen you do meditations and they really get everyone else t you are a little bit of transcendence my friend a little chunk of transcendence <laughs> which i love i and o e i e i o i would like to live on your farm uh, and then n sometimes nice guys finish first in the mindfulness for dummy stakes and you most certainly have so that is my blessing for you you're wonderful thanks so that much for brilliant. listening and then uh thanks for listening thank you, everyone okay thank you so much guys right, really then. appreciate bye it bye. absolutely loved it so we are this is the first time where James, we're going to do a bit of a wrap up at the end, just have a little five minute reflection, the reflection session. Uh, what did you take for that, mate? Wow. Uh, firstly, just Shamash's presence. I know that's a really wanky thing to say about someone, but what a brilliant guy, what a fun person to talk to, someone who just seems to really have figured out himself and what makes him move through the world with joy and excitement. So I just really love speaking to people like that. I really, that really did it for me. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love him. And there's a really interesting thing. I, I used to uh, like really hate it when people said, oh, you've got a great energy, Sanderson, uh, because, uh, you know, you're sort of like, well, well, I mean, that's like saying you're very tall or whatever it is, like something which is really by the by. But I am quite interested in what that means and how so often people who are, uh, you know, in this world of, uh, you know, whatever it might be, teaching, development, spirituality, like how they go and cultivate that and how people who do these practices are able to, I don't know, is it like freeing from some things? Uh, I don't know what it is fully and so I was more familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy than you are even though you've got loads of degrees from Harvard so in your face uh the uh I'd never heard of it before <laughs> but I think it's maybe like not as evidence-based as all as I don't know you know this stuff I, is my experience has been that um most forms of therapy are actually really hard to demonstrate any evidence base that they really work better than placebo but but that wouldn't make this one any worse than any other one and they people tell you it works so you've got to give something to that uh and yeah and so what did you take from the sort of ideas in it like what were there any particular that resonated or uh yeah i i like this idea of not trying to talk yourself out of negative thoughts that's actually something that my therapist taught me was that when i was really struggling with anxiety that I could I could ask my body to like bring it on to say actually yeah okay everything is going to go wrong isn't it so um uh, uh it's a weird thing to say but it's it's like asking your anxiety to tell you okay what's what's next yes okay so my, my relationship is gonna go wrong and we're gonna hate each other okay yeah that's true what else is gonna happen is terrible in my life oh my career's not gonna take off mm. like i i hope it oh that's true okay what's more and you sort of ride the anxiety and find that it isn't as bad as you think and that 
is very freeing, you know, when you finally mm. do that. So, uh, yeah. So I I find that that thing in act, which is such a huge part of it, is particular. And again, because there's so much, you've got to have positive thoughts. I think that idea of the Stoics of you know just uh, always uh, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Which is which often gets interpreted as you should only think positively and you should always be on the guard, but it does create this thing where you, you think that you're failing at it or, and then it makes it worse. Or it, you think that oh, throughout my life, how come I haven't yet fixed this? And yet there is something which, and sometimes it's not even, even if you don't catch it in the moment, it means that afterwards you can go, okay, that's okay. You know, that's a usual suspect. I'll get better at dealing with that. And yeah, that is for me the biggest thing from it. And also I love the idea of expansion of like trying to, you know, that sense of trying to step away and make the problem seem, not make it go away, but just sort of like almost take a step back. So yeah, there's so much uh, more in the rest of uh, ACT and now, uh, we're going to wrap up this section, though I will do my, this is a new bit. I'm going to go and do a little bit just to go over what's happened in the life on this project. So, James, thank you so much. Uh, you, you bet. That was uh, a pleasure. Great as ever. Uh, and then uh, see you next week, or but probably many times in between. So there we go. Slightly new format. Mm, we'll see how it works. Uh, let us know uh, which way you like it. And so uh, what's been happening in the life on this project? So... <laughs> like quite, I should tell you what, this is one of those weeks where it's been quite dull in terms of, but sort of quite exciting. I found a way to invite podcast guests more easily, which has worked really well of inviting people I really, really want to hear from and then being able to do it in a way which is relatively efficient. Sounds dull, but it does mean we're going to have some like amazing guests coming up. So that's good. And have done sort of a few back end things, which will should have uh, you know real impact uh, in terms of the community and in terms of doing more events. And so that is good. The downside has been that my uh, my ADHD coach, as I mentioned, has got COVID, and so there were he really helps me with stuff and helps me plan and helps me do a lot of things which. Truth be told, if I don't do them, sometimes I can get into a real state about it. You know, I'm not perfect, not a celestial being. Uh, so that has been a bit tricky. And uh, but other than that, it's been great. So uh, as ever, if you want to get involved in the lifefulness community, we're launching some more small groups. So do go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership. That is the right place. And you are going to go and find them. Uh, find an application form uh, and then what happens is you apply then we arrange a phone call and then we go and launch the small groups so uh, please go and do that it would be great to have you on board and I mean I guess well, I don't know we didn't really speak about this like I really am just it's been a bit weird like we're gonna be having to do stuff online for a long time in the future so look if you do want to have community connection then I you know that's why we do this uh all right thanks so much for listening there will be more info in the show notes uh then you can uh 
Uh, thanks to James. Thanks to Shamash. Uh, you guys are both great. Thanks so much to Mavs, who is the producer of this. Then thanks to William Andrews, who has done the artwork. And thanks to Roman Rapak and Miro Shot, who uh, have done the music that you're listening to right now. Uh, 